Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, everybody. How's it going? We're live. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, June 3rd is just moments away. But before we do this, we need to thank our sponsors. Sponsors like SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana. The Chicago Federation of Labor sponsors, as well as the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know. The city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what type of pot to smoke. It's true. They talk about it. And political columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky and Maya Duke Masava. So much more. Chicago Reader. Subscribe. ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out the Ben Jarofsky show, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. You can be a bin head. Find out more information, chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. And the Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Thursday, June 3rd. And live from my apartment and his attic, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, we welcome Grace Pye, and it's the return of Jacobin Magazine's own Micah Utrich. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling The Sky is Falling Thursday, and here's why. Because the sky is falling, people. Look out! <laughs> That's the sound of the sky falling. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's more like the sound of breaking news. Uh, but, you know, sometimes breaking news in the sky are falling at the same thing. All right, let's yeah, you know. uh, let's take the details here, D. <laughs> Yesterday, the state Senate made a teeny tiny step toward replacing Chicago's mayoral appointed school board with an elected school board. And Mayor Lori Lightfoot had a press conference and denounced it as undemocratic. Let me repeat that. The state Senate took a teeny tiny step toward taking a board that is mayoral control and making it voter control. And the mayor calls that undemocratic. Wait a minute. Now, I admit I was not the smartest kid in high school. Now, I did pass, though, and I'm a high school graduate, and I know that democracy be would be where the voters get to decide things, where the voters get to vote. That would be democracy. An autocracy or bossocracy, as I like to call it here in Chicago, would be where the mayor is the only one who gets the votes. So if you replace a bossocracy with a democracy, that's democratic. But the mayor calls it undemocratic. You know, folks, I've got to give Mayor Lori Lightfoot credit. That was a brilliant Trump-like maneuver. That was classic Trump projection. You take something that you're doing it, 
and you project it on the opposition and then say, I gotcha. And by the way, as weird as Mayor Lord Lightfoot's response, the editorial response of the Sun-Times was even weirder. Let me just take this moment to say, bright one, you know I love you. I subscribe to you. You're welcome. I've been subscribing to you since, like, the 80s. But when it comes to an elected school board, you have lost your freaking mind. You have written the classic Sky is Falling editorial. I will now read you the opening parts of today's editorial in the Chicago Sun-Times. A newspaper, ladies and gentlemen, millennials, this is called a newspaper. (laughs) Here's the lead. If test scores fall in Chicago public schools, blame Illinois Senate President Don Harmon. If enrollment declines further into city schools, blame state Senator Bob Martwick. If property taxes go up to pay for the schools, blame those in the state Senate who voted Tuesday to create an absurdly unwieldy 21 member elected Chicago school board. Blah, 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 blah. All right. Let's just break it down. Sometimes. Come on. You know as well as I do, test scores go up, they go down, they're largely manipulated by bureaucrats who are, their main purpose in life is to make the mayor look good, even though the mayor, he or she, has really nothing to do with how students perform in schools and that student performance in schools is largely determined by their, how much money they have, how much money their families have, where they live. You know that. It's got nothing to do with who the mayor is or who the mayor appoints to the board or if the board's elected or not. So to te- say that test scores would go up or down, Because we switch the school board from elected to appointed is absurd. People leaving Chicago? That was your other thing. People are going to leave in droves. Man, there is nobody going to stay or come to Chicago one way or the other because we replaced an appointed school board, elected school board. I will tell you right now, as obsessed as I am with this issue, and as much as I talk about it, and as much as I write about it, and as much as I read about it, I will bet you right now, not a majority of the people in the city of Chicago could tell you whether we have an elected school board or an appointed school board. They are as ignorant of the politics of school boards as I am of Masani, which is a company that Target purchased a few years ago or cut a deal with Target. And I never even heard of them until the deal went down and my daughters explained it to me. And then people leaving Chicago because we may have an elected school board. <laughs> That's just so funny, man. I just keep thinking about that. Honey, let's pack up the kids. We're going to Oak Park because they're having an elected school board in Chicago. Oh, wait a minute. They got one in Oak Park. You can't go to any other town in the state of Illinois because they all have elected school boards. So I don't know what you're going to do. If the thing that's going to drive you and motivate you to stay in Chicago or leave Chicago is an elected school board, I don't know where you're going to go. Maybe you should go to Moscow. I'm not sure they have an elected school board in Moscow. Come on, sometimes. And finally, property taxes. Oh, my God. Property taxes have been going up, 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 up for as long as I can remember. And I can say this because I pay them. And they will continue to go up, 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 up because we have a crazy system of funding school with property taxes. It has nothing to do with whether the school board's appointed or elected. You know that sometimes. And also has something to do with the surcharge that the city slaps on our property tax to pay for the TIFs. 
So you think the money's going to your public schools, but it's actually being diverted to the TIFs and you pay more in property taxes for the schools. A fact that no one will acknowledge because to acknowledge that is to threaten the source of the money that the mayor likes to spend. And so they treat people who do acknowledge it as crazy people (laughs) like they treat me. Oh, that weird guy's going to start talking about TIFs again. More Trump-like projection. You ever notice how Trump calls Bernie crazy? Uh, crazy Bernie. <laughs> well, that's I'm familiar with that tactic. Because whenever you speak like the truth about stuff, they call you crazy. Here's the situation, ladies and gentlemen. Elected school board is largely a symbolic fight. I have no idea if an elected school board will mean children will perform better. I doubt that it will. I believe, as I said already, that the differences in test scores and academic performance in the Chicago public schools and any school district is largely linked to the amount of money in the family that the kid comes from. I think that's true. And that the city of Chicago, like school districts throughout the country, have never figured out a way to get the poorest kids from the most low income of families to achieve as well as kids, let's say, in Winneka or Wilmette. It's a challenge that has been too difficult for and i've seen mayors and superintendents come and go and school board members nobody knows how to deal with that that central problem the disparity nobody knows how to deal with that in large part in my humble opinion because they don't want to deal with it because that would mean let's say spending more money on the poor kids of chicago as opposed to spending it on development deals like lincoln yards for one on my mind Anyway, the other funny thing about the debate over the elected school board is whether the public wants it or not. This is so classic. I saw this in a Sun-Times editorial, I think, or a Tribune editorial. It said there was a survey done by Stanford Children, which is a anti-elected school board outfit, that says upwards of 47% of the people in the city of Chicago don't want an elected school board. I had to laugh at that because for as long as I can remember, the powers of being the city of Chicago have done everything they can to keep the citizens of Chicago from having a vote on this. Back in the days of Mayor Rahm, he would exercise all kinds of little legislative maneuvers to keep the public from having the right to vote in a referendum. Do you want a school board? He would just he would pack the ballot with all these nonsensical. Nobody cares about referendum questions that would prevent people from addressing the issue. Do you want a school board? Why did he do that? Because he figured that there was a good chance that the people would say, yes, we want an elected school board. And then what are you going to do? So now they tell us the people of the city of Chicago really don't want an elected school board. Let the people speak. That's funny. You never let the people speak before. Now, by the way, I have no illusions that if there were a referendum, elected school board would pass. I don't know if that's the case because I think into the fair tax fight that just went down, what was that, last November? I thought for sure that the fair tax would pass because it seemed to make so much sense, raise the taxes on the wealthiest people in the state so that the uh, low-income people and the middle-class people pay less. But it was so poorly organized, so poorly phrased, the other side was able to demagogue the hell out of it And people ended up voting for essentially a tax break for the wealthiest people and a tax hike on themselves. So I have no doubt that the people who oppose an elected school board were perfectly capable of doing a jujitsu political campaign that would get people to vote against an elected school board in the city of Chicago. But they don't even want to take that chance. (laughs) They would just rather public never have the opportunity to even think about the issue. So no referendum. 
Anyway, yes, the state Senate uh, passed school board bill, but I'm not convinced completely convinced we'll actually get an elected school board out of this. It still has to pass the House. still has to be signed by the governor. I've seen this game played before. School board passes the House, dies in the Senate, passes the Senate, dies in the House. That's what they call democracy. We got a great show today, everybody. As Dennis says, Grace Pye, uh, Asian Americans Advancing Justice is with us. Going to talk about House Bill 376. Yes, yes, yes. I love it when my guests show up early. I'm looking at Grace right now. We're going to bring her on really soon. And then uh, in a little while, Michael Urich will join us as well. Jacobin writer, uh, the author of his book on Bernie Sanders. It's bigger than Bernie. It's come out in paperback. We're going to be talking about all the great national and local issues, political issues today with Micah. He's fired up and ready to go. But before we bring Mike on, we're going to talk to Grace Pye. Grace, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, you're very welcome. And I will not. Repeat, not ask you any questions about an elected school board. How about that? I'm going <laughs> to, we're just going to move on. What's that? I enjoyed your intro. Oh, okay. I'll take that as sort of an endorsement. At least it was entertaining. All right. Um, Grace uh, is, tell, well, let, this is your first time on the show. So why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, tell people who you are, what you represent and how you got to this position. Go ahead, Grace. Sure. So, as Ben said, my name is Grace Pye. I'm the director of organizing at Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago. And our mission as an organization is to build power through collective advocacy and organizing to achieve racial equity. And we kind of shifted our mission a number of years ago to really center racial equity because yes, we advocate for Asian Americans. We work on issues that really impact members of the Asian American community, but we're certainly not you know, taking kind of that narrow of a lens to the work that we do. We want to make sure that we're organizing Asian Americans into the broader racial equity movement. And so some of the issues that we work on, for example, police accountability are explicitly more solidarity work oriented. Although I will say that we got into police accountability work because of an Asian American um, person, a woman in Chicago who was brutally attacked by police officers at her workplace um, a number of years ago and was, you know, verbally harassed and threatened um, based on, you know, what they thought was her immigration status. So that was kind of our entry point, but we continued that work and, you know, have worked with Black-led organizations, Latinx-led organizations, other immigrant rights organizations to continue police accountability with that lens of immigrant rights. But we work on a bunch of different issues, things like language access that are really important in the Asian American community, um, immigrant rights, of course, and immigration, which is you know a big deal at the federal level right now. And we do work on education equity um, to your kind of question about elected school board, Ben. Um, that is an issue that we work on. We um, work mostly with immigrant and refugee high school students. Um, and so that has been you know an issue that we have supported um, over the years. And so, yeah, that's just a little little tidbit. Before we get into some of the specifics, you said something I found interesting. I, I, I jotted it down. Solidarity work uh, as opposed to what? If it's not, you know what I'm saying? So like you say we do solidarity work and what's the uh, the other thing? Well, so, you know, I think one of the ways that we think about our work is um, how are we working on issues with people who are most directly impacted by those issues? So in the case of police brutality, I would not say that Asian Americans are the most impacted group, right? Of course, 
Black folks are much more impacted by police violence than Asian Americans. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't support, you know, police accountability or anti-police brutality work, but, you know, we don't necessarily see ourselves as the group that should be leading it, but we're still involved. And I think it's important for us to know how does that issue impact Asian Americans? Because it surely does, just not on the same scale, right? So we're not trying to equate our work or our stake, but we are trying to bring, you know, I think um, there's a person whose name I'm blanking on now who kind of wrote a blog post a while ago, kind of with this term selfish solidarity, that you have to know what is your stake in it? How are Asian Americans impacted? So it's not just a purely selfless, you know, we should be involved to help other people. It's important to know your stake, but it's also important to do work that impacts, you know, people who are, who do not share your identities. And so that's kind of how we think about some of our solidarity work. Very good. I'm going to have to look into that selfish solidarity and read that blog post and maybe bring you back and have a full discussion on it because that sounds intriguing. But not having read it, I'll move on to an, uh, away from it. And um, so the first thought I had when I was talking to you bef- uh, before the show, one of the challenges of a group of that's a coalition of Asian Americans is that it's a diverse group. Uh, very diverse, just all the different ethnic groups, all the different countries that people come from, all the different situations that led to the, uh, their arrival in America, all like the generational differences, families who've been here for a hundred years, as opposed to families who come here for the last 10 years or 15 years. Talk about the diversity within the Asian American coalition. Asian Americans are an incredibly diverse community. It's one of the things that actually makes it hard to organize Asian Americans because people have so many different identities and people don't necessarily identify with the term Asian American, right? They identify with their particular ethnic identity. Like I identify as Korean American or identify as Indian American or, you know, I identify as Japanese American, but Asian American is really a political identity that emerged in the sixties you know, as a way to bring different Asian American and some Pacific Islander, you know, people together to advocate for, you know, a shared cause or issues that impact all of us. Um, But, you know, you know, the continent of Asia is vast and it includes dozens of different countries, right? And then even dozens of languages where even within one country, there can be a dozen languages spoken. So, you know, typically people talk about Asia in the context of kind of three regions, um, East Asia, South Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, But, you know, I think there's really a conversation too around what people might describe as Central Asia um, or West Asia, you know, including like countries like Iran or Afghanistan. And I think, you know, with, for example, on the 2020 census, there has been a really concerted effort um, in Arab American communities to create a separate category, right? Where a lot of Arab Americans don't have necessarily a box to check on the census. Do they check white? Do they check Asian? They don't necessarily identify with either. And so, you know, I think in a lot of our work, we partner with organizations that work more in specifically the Arab American community. And, um, you know, that's not always part of the broader conversation around APIs, right? Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, which is the typical acronym that's that's used these days. Um, there's also, I think, an effort among Pacific Islander communities to say, like, don't lump us in with everybody else. Like, if you're not actually working with Pacific Islander communities, and so our name, Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago, intentionally is not API 
advancing justice in Chicago because we don't have those deep ties in the Pacific Islander community here in the Chicago area and and in Illinois to kind of really warrant that, right? So we don't want to speak on behalf of folks who we don't actually work with. Um, But, you know, as you said, there's a wide range of immigration pathways. Like most Asian Americans came after 1965 when the U.S. passed landmark immigration policy that opened up immigration from Asia when it was previously restricted by racist immigration quotas that only allowed immigrants from Europe, right? But, um, But a lot of there are other particular ethnic communities that have been here for many more generations, right? Think about Chinese railroad workers in the 1800s, Japanese immigrants that came in the 1800s, Filipinos that came, you know, early, early on. Um, And so I think, you know, it's important to remember that there's this public perception that all Asian Americans are recent immigrants, that we're all foreigners, you know, quote unquote, and that's just not the reality. And, you know, often we're painted with too broad of a brush. Uh, and uh, the impact of Donald Trump, I know you're nonpartisan and you don't want to get uh, make political affiliations, et cetera, and so forth. But I'm speak. This is Ben speaking, not Grace. OK, so Ben gets to talk and uh, I don't have to have to worry about these things. But I have noticed uh, this is going to be very obvious, Grace, uh, an uptick in hostility uh to Asian Americans, and it doesn't matter where they come from. People just identify them as somewhere from the continent of Asia. Uh, and because of COVID, there's going to be hostility. Just boil it down to that. Like they're going to blame some Korean American who's been in this country for like a hundred years. It's just so re- absurd and ridiculous. Well, it's absurd and ridiculous to blame anybody for what, for COVID. You get what I'm saying? Uh, but it's just, it's, it adds to the absurdity uh, if the person that you're blaming is not even from the country that you're blaming, et cetera, and so forth. So am I correct uh, that there has been an increase uh, in hostility toward Asian Americans in the last four years? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it surely has been fueled by former President Donald Trump's rhetoric. You know, I can say that with my nonpartisan hat on because the connection is clear, right? When he's saying things like China virus or Wuhan virus or whatever, you know, he's enabling and um, legitimizing, you know, people to act on those beliefs in violent ways toward other people. I mean, just examples of things that we've seen across the country, particularly in the last year since COVID emerged. Surely there was a lot of, especially anti-China sentiment. And I will say from both political parties, there is anti-China sentiment from both political parties, but Donald Trump really took that to another level with the onset of COVID and really blamed and scapegoated Asian Americans for that crisis which is a global pandemic. It's like, how can you blame, you know, one group of people for this clearly global, uh, global health issue, right? But we have seen an incredible rise in violence. And, you know, it's really sad to read these stories. Like I remember early on, there was that family in a Sam's club in Texas that was attacked by someone with a knife. You know, he like slashed the face of this child, you know, and his parent, they were just grocery shopping. You know, then, of course, the Atlanta shootings, when you see stuff like that and then see the response, I mean, the response to the Atlanta shooting, you know, especially in the media and the local police down there. I mean, that was just horrifying, you know, and so I think that's the stuff that really makes Asian Americans feel 
fear and anxiety and just worry, right? You're just carrying around, like, am I going to get attacked the next time I go to the grocery store? Like, should I not go out by myself, right? Like, there are all these concerns. Should I be concerned for my parents or grandparents? I think a lot of people are carrying, you know, those worries right now. Grace, you talk about the response to the shootings in Atlanta. Why don't you take a little, uh, go in a little detail, a little more. What did you mean by the response that was uh, frightening in and of itself? Well, first, of course, the local police response, right? That sheriff's spokesperson who said, oh, he just had a bad day was, you know, justifying the actions of this murderer, right? Literal mass murderer who went to three Asian businesses and killed mostly Asian American women. How do you look at that and say he had a bad day or that it wasn't motivated by racial identity, and I think, you know, there's just that, like, that questioning or that um, just the tremendous effort to defend this white mass murderer, I think just really hit close to home for a lot of people. Like, how in the wake of this tragedy is this what we're seeing as the, like, you know, law enforcement response? And then, too, you know, the media response. I mean, I think a lot of the media coverage did not focus on the victims at all and and telling their stories or humanizing them, right? There was this effort, I think, to um, call into question, were they sex workers or not? Why is that relevant? They were murdered at their workplace while working during a global pandemic in what was probably a low-wage job. Why are we talking about that at all? And And then also, I heard from the Asian American Journalists Association that some Asian American journalists were told by their newsrooms, oh, you shouldn't cover this. Maybe this is too personal for you, you know, or maybe you can't cover this in an unbiased way. I'm like, what? How could we say that? Like, do we let, do we say that to white reporters who cover things that happen to white people? <laughs> no, we don't. And, and then on top of it, there were early reports from a Korean language newspaper that an eyewitness heard the shooter say, I'm going to kill all Asians while walking out of one of the spas. Why do you think that was only reported in Korean language media? Probably because the eyewitness is a monolingual Korean speaker who was approached by a Korean speaking reporter who could approach them in a respectful way, speak to them in their own language after an extremely traumatic event. So not, you know, keeping Asian American journalists on the sidelines has real consequences too in the overall media narrative what gets reported right what gets shared and and so i think that was just disappointing to see i I, uh that was by the way great riff uh grace uh and um i did not know uh, ignorance here about the editors let me just say this come on editors you gotta be better. What do you think we are? 1971. I just blasted the Chicago Sun-Times for one of the dumbest editorials ever. Ben speaking, not Grace. She loves the Chicago Sun-Times. Ben, not Grace. But that is unbelievable, Grace. I did not know that. That the editor, That's like, that's really out of Trump. Because Trump was the one, if you recall, early on, he said there was a judge in, I think it was Indiana, don't quote me, but there was a judge in Indiana that would rule against him on an issue of immigration because the judge was of Hispanic origin. I'm like, and he got away with it with MAGA. They were, oh, yeah, well, you know, yeah, put a white guy in there. <laughs> that's, that's just crazy, man. That I, You know what? And I know that a lot of black reporters have been dealing with that going back in the 70s, 
in the 80s. Monroe Anderson comes on the show all the time and talks about uh, when he was at the Tribune back in the day. And, you know, can you fairly cover racial issues? We want to know. Like the white people are just automatically fairly. But that's right. a whole other. Right. Uh, exactly. I mean, and you can tell I feel very strongly about it. So. Uh, Grace, and that's a perfect transition into uh, the bill that was passed, which is a bill that would mandate uh, the teaching of Asian American histories. It got a whole bunch of questions about that. But part of the reason, like you include that curriculum, is that there's some youngsters out there right now who, if they do grow up and become editors, won't say something as stupid as those editors said to those re- reporters. I'm now going to get off my high horse and turn things back to Grace. Talk a little bit about HB 376. HB 376 is the Teaching Equitable Asian American Community History Act. Great acronym because it shortens <laughs> to the TEACH Act, and it requires that Asian American history be taught in all Illinois public schools. It was just passed by the House and the Senate. The House passed it on concurrence on Monday, the very last day, and it passed with overwhelming bipartisan support, which is you know, I stunning. Think it, it is stunning. We, we were surprised, um, but we're also glad to see that you know, in the wake of this anti-Asian racism from the last year that, okay, some people are, you know, taking action in light of that reality. Um, but we would be the first country or the first, the first country, the first state in the country to require all public schools to teach a full unit of Asian American history. And I think that's telling. It's also exciting to me that we in Illinois were able to do that when so often we see, you know, coastal states like California or New York, uh, you know, leading on these kinds of issues. But um, it's exciting that the Midwest gets to claim claim this win. All right, I got a couple of questions. The first one is the political question, and then we'll get to the curricula question. Political question is, and this when you said this, when we had our show, uh, con- first conversation was last week, I'm like, wait a minute, Grace, you tell me you got Republicans to sign on it? And Grace was like, yeah, it was unanimous in the Senate, and I passed out. Uh, <laughs> I just could not believe I was... Uh, those MAGA hat wearers in the Senate voted for this thing. And that I started thinking, well, maybe, you know, like a Darren Bailey, a state senator, the far right wing MAGA loving state senator from central Illinois is running for governor. He's thinking of Asian American votes that he may want to get uh, in Naperville. Maybe MAGA is actually moving, inching beyond its core base of MAGA lovers, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too generous. Uh, maybe the senators didn't know what they were voting on and just voted for it anyway. What's your explanation, uh, Grace, for why you had such overwhelming support? It was unanimous in the Senate. I think there were 10, you told me 10 uh, uh, House of Representatives voted against it. But that's pretty significant uh, vote. I can't think of anything that's as overwhelming. So what, what, what do you attribute to? Well, I think there are a multitude of factors. One certainly is the rise in anti-Asian racism. We've had some really powerful testimony from students, from community members, from teachers who are talking about the importance of teaching this history in this political moment. You know, I want to give them some credit. Like, certainly, you know, we have built a really compelling narrative around why this is so necessary now. But I think there is also, you know, the Asian American community is not a monolith, and there are conservative-leaning Asian Americans in various communities. It's, you know, I think it's not, it's certainly not a majority. You know, majority of Asian Americans still lean Democrat 
or, you know, vote democratic um, API data is a really amazing organization that does a ton of research and surveying um, to find disaggregated Asian American data, because when you just look at the averages across all of the ethnic groups, it really hides some of the different trends. So for example, like Vietnamese Americans are the most likely, they're the only ethnic group that is more likely to support the Republican party than the democratic party. The other, I think important thing to really highlight in terms of political leanings is that a significant portion of Asian Americans do not identify with either party and identify more as independent or kind of undecided, right? And so I think in the API data survey from um, the 2020 election cycle, um, 44% identified as Democrats, 23% as Republicans, and 30%, 31% as independent or other. So that's a significant share, you know, and I think it really speaks to the history of the major political parties not really reaching out to Asian Americans, right? Not kind of courting that vote in the way that other minority groups have really, I think, been catered to more in the political arena. Um, and so, you know, I'm taking off my nonpartisan hat. I took a leave of absence um, over the winter, moved to Georgia and did some, I led a canvas program um, for the Asian American Advocacy Fund PAC. And we knocked on the doors of more than 100,000 Asian American voters in five and a half weeks. It was a whirlwind, I'll tell you that. But like there was finally investment in reaching out to Asian Americans voters specifically, doing in-language outreach, doing that particular tailored outreach to these different ethnic communities that I think we haven't really seen until now. You know, and so now that I think Asian Americans are more recognized as one of the largest, you know, fastest growing ethnic groups or racial groups in the United States is one of the fastest growing electorates that we are seeing people pay more attention. And so I imagine that some Republicans who voted yes on our bill are thinking, oh, I, I, I should make an effort, you know, to do something for Asian Americans. Wait, so put it, put that uh cap that knocking on the door cap on she's taking off the the one nonpartisan cap she could put the other cap on all right irs or whoever's listening um so what your sense uh, we talked a lot about the georgia uh, senator uh, elections on the show uh, we had people from georgia come on it's a, a mini obsession of mine so in your humble opinion based on uh, the door knocking that you did and talking to people uh, and looking at results uh, who did Asian Americans uh, in Georgia, by and large, support uh, Warnock and Ossoff, the the Democrats, or did they go for the Republicans? No, I do think they supported the Democrats. I mean, I haven't looked at the numbers in a in a long while, um, but you know, we did. I mean, just from my anecdotal experience of like knocking on doors, right? We were talking to like, well, only Asian American voters. And I was surprised by the number of folks who had voted for Warnock and Ossoff already, you know, in the general election and who were aware of the runoff election. Right? It's not it's not it's very unusual for there to be a runoff election. <laughs> Hold right? on, like, great. That's that is the bar is low. I, I love I just got a just a moment. I mean, that's like a Chicagoan. I, I remember in 2015. This is Ben talking that Grace, when we had our first mayoral runoff ever in Chicago. I would talk to him wait a minute, I voted already. You mean I vote again? Yes, Chicago. <laughs> so exactly. the bar is low, but I, I'll, I'll concede it. The bar is low, and God bless every voter in Georgia who knew what they wrote. I'm sorry, Grace, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead, continue. No, no, I mean, you know, that's it. I think that we were able to really demonstrate what's possible, right? And in terms of immigration, in terms of 
healthcare, right? There are a lot, there's so many issues at stake. We could really tell people your vote really matters. Here's what's going to happen. What could happen versus what will be impossible. Yeah. You know, so that was really exciting to be a part of. I mean, just personally, you know, I spent the holidays away from my family and threw down in Georgia and we got to celebrate a huge victory at the end of it. Yeah, I uh, just want to alert everybody. My next guest, Micah, has shown up in the virtual uh, studio. We're going to bring him on a little bit. Still talking to Grace Pye. And uh, Grace, let's get down to the the challenges of devising a curriculum. So it's going to be statewide. Just think about this. I know you already have, but I've been thinking about this since you and I had a conversation. Just the challenges of trying to put together a curriculum that embodies like all the different ethnic groups. That we've already talked about how diverse the Asian American community. And then you may have a history that would irritate Tate. You know what I mean? You're going too left with that. You know, like right now we have this conversation in the show all the time about the 1619 project, which uh, has the project by the New York Times uh, began having to do with the roots of slavery in this country and the impact that slavery has had politically and culturally, etc. And MAGA has taken that and turned that into their rallying cry. And uh, they they use that as they said that's a form of anti-American propaganda. So twisted and weird, in my humble opinion. But I could see a similar like if you start talking about Japanese Americans put in detention camps in California, et cetera, and the, uh, on the West Coast, I could see some people, including some Asian Americans, saying that's anti-American. So how do you deal with this? Uh, the different political polling uh, on the issue of what you teach the kids. Well, our legislation left it pretty broad. You know, we gave teachers and school districts flexibility in how they implement it because Asian American history is American history. All teachers, all students learn U.S. history, right? So they can weave it into their existing curricula in a way that doesn't just feel like, oh, here's our one day focused on, you know, Asian Americans during (laughs) the New Year, right? We definitely don't want that. But luckily, we do have a set of curricula um, provided by PBS um, that accompanied their Asian Americans documentary series that was launched in May of 2020. It's a five-hour documentary series. Highly recommend it for all the adults that have five hours of time to dedicate. You know, they're like one-hour episodes. But, you know, for teachers and for students, of course, they don't have that time. And nobody just wants to show a five-hour documentary series. So there's this accompanying curriculum that has, like, vocabulary lists, discussion questions, activities, like short video clips that teachers can use and weave into the history that they're teaching, whether they teach it chronologically or thematically, right? We've been talking with teachers about how do you do this well, right? What resources do you need? What would you find most helpful? And so, you know, I really hope that in the implementation that just students and teachers are able to really talk, speak to the value of it. Right. Of seeing yourself, your own community story reflected in the classroom, of learning something that you didn't know, being able to break down some of these stereotypes and that that will really speak to the importance of the bill overall. All right. Well, I think it's important, Bill, and I'm glad you got a pass. And I wish we had a unit like that in the way back in the dinosaur era when I was in school. Um, Because most of the stuff I learned, like the quote unquote bad history, uh, you know, about how we treated for instance, the Japanese Americans, I learned just on my own, you know what I'm saying? I I don't recall anybody ever today. We're going to discuss how we took American citizens and took away all their property and threw them in concentration. What? So, um, right. Right. 
Uh, Grace, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And uh, you want to give out any information? If people want more information, uh, they want to contact your organization, just uh, take a moment to uh, give that information out right now. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone who wants to learn more can go to our website, which is advancingjustice-chicago.org. And, you know, we have a page on Teach if you want to learn more about our Teach Act. We have a page on our bystander trainings if you want to learn what to do if you witness anti-Asian harassment in your neighborhood. Right? There are lots of ways that folks can take action and support our work. Um, so thanks so much for having me, Ben. Uh, Grace, my pleasure. And uh, next time you put on that other hat, that political door knocking hat, we're going to bring in the show. And we're going to talk about that because we're all political junkies here on the Ben Jarofsky show. Uh, <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks all so right. Much. That's Grace Pye. Thank you very much. Micah is on deck, ready to come on, talk about uh, the uh, paperback edition just out of his The Movement is Bigger Than Bernie. Yeah, we've been talking about that book forever. So we're going to have Micah on right after this. sharing stories over the years to deciding to write a book.
Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from his attic. Uh, I want to be a centrist, uh, Michael Girardi. That song's been on my mind. Dennis played it. Uh, Michael Girardi, you should know, I've been singing that song all day. For some reason, I woke up singing it. You know how that goes when you get a song in your mind, you can't stop singing it. Uh, there's all I have. A, my house is filled with guests uh, this week, so I'm walking around going, I want to be a centrist. And they're like, what are you talking about? So anyway, Michael Girardi, great song. I want to be a centrist. Cut that baby in half. I assume that's just every day in the Drafsky household. You're walking around <laughs> singing that song. I want to be a centrist, Mike. Uh, you know what? Just for once in my life, I want to be something other than it's just some guy on the fringe. You know what I mean? I want to be part of the power elite that run this city and run this state. You know what? You can't. I always have these uh, young guests come on. I've, I've never asked you this question, Micah. So I'm going to throw this to you. Micah, a young man, a millennial, very smart guy, wrote a great book, uh, writes uh, great uh, journalism for Jacobin in these times, et cetera, and so forth. Micah, if you just did not stick to your principles and you just wrote propaganda for the man, you'd make a fortune. If you just were willing to sell everything out and throw it out the window and just, cons- you know, we're just thinking about that bottom line. You be doing really well. Do you ever, are you ever tempted, Micah, just to go to the other side? You know, sitting here in my room uh, that has no closet with my two other roommates that I live with as a 33-year-old man. No, I would never. I would never think of something like that, Ben. No, of course, I think about that every day. If I was on the right, if you're on the right and you can just string together like two coherent sentences they're throwing like six figure sinecure jobs at you you got book deals you're on fox news you know you know arguing about whatever the latest dumb culture war controversy is uh it, life would be really just smooth sailing for you if, if if you were on the right uh and yeah i do when i look at you know the student loan balance that i still have and i'm Think about, uh, oh, probably never going to be able to uh, retire or uh, buy a house or uh, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it's it, it, the thought may enter my mind, but it doesn't, it doesn't stay there for long because I, you know, I sleep very well at night. I have to say that I may live in a, in a tiny room with no closet, but in that room with no closet, I sleep very soundly every night. All right. Well, let me just say this if for whatever reason you decide out of hell with it and I go to the other side. I will not hold it against I figure we got 10 good years out of you. All right. And that's more than I get for most, most people come right out of school. Ben, you know, you gotta look at the other side. <laughs> like the other side isn't looked at every day. Uh, all right. Uh, I'm going to refrain from going into a discourse on the Chicago Sun times editorial, which is one of the dumbest editorials I've ever read about the elected school board. Some, and Lori Lightfoot's comments that somehow or other an elected school board, which is itself the definition of democracy is undemocratic. I'm, I'm going to avoid that. I just, I just looked to my left and saw it sitting there, Micah. And I'm going to talk about your book, the paperback edition, uh, bigger than Bernie, Take it away. Tell folks uh, that uh, all about the book, uh, what the central theme was in the original book and the updated version. Go ahead. So I wrote this book, Bigger Than Bernie, with another Jacobin staffer, Megan Day. And we just sort of took stock of what was going on in uh, around 2019, uh, what was going on in American politics, and you know, realized that Bernie Sanders had really reshaped 
the the fundamental you know prospects of American politics. It, it, he his campaign reshaped what is considered politically acceptable to argue for and fight for in this country. It is detoxified this term socialism that for so many decades was this taboo word. There are all kinds of new political possibilities that were on the table uh, that his campaign in 2016 helped uh, spark and helped explode. Uh, and yet very few people, I, I don't think anybody really at the, at the time had really written a book that was just sort of taking stock of those changes that had happened uh, and, and, you know, said that here's what's happened and maybe here's where this movement is going. And so uh, Megan and I decided to do that with this book and to uh, talk about Bernie, what makes Bernie so uh, unique and singular as an individual, as a politician, as a, as a kind of activist politician. Um, but there's really only one chapter in the book about Bernie. The rest is about everything that's happened since Bernie's campaign. So, you know, that includes uh, everything from, you know, the upsurges that happened around the teacher strikes, which, of course, uh, Bernie Sanders was not directly responsible for. But that we talk about how his campaign helped spark some of those red state revolts that happened uh, in states like West Virginia and Arizona. And then talk about what role socialists had uh, in all of that. The explosion of the Democratic Socialists of America, which is an organization that I'm a part of. Of, uh, that is doing all kinds of work, ranging from electoral work, which is maybe its most famous work, uh, everywhere from you know someone like uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or Rashida Tlaib in Congress, both of whom are members of DSA, to you know the local level here in Chicago, where we've got six people who are uh, are or have been affiliated with the Democratic Socialists of America uh, on our city council. And we have a five-member uh, socialist uh, caucus on the city council that was recently announced here on your show. Um, so we've got that kind of electoral socialist work happening. We also have the people who are uh, socialists who are engaged in all kinds of labor movement work, organizing around affordable housing. We talk in the book for example, about the huge spate of affordable housing measures that were passed in New York that were not solely the efforts of socialists uh, in elected office or in the streets, but socialists played a key role in that. Uh, to immigrant rights, to all, all kinds of the, all of the, you know, Green New Deal, all of the most important political fights of our of our day, of our generation, really, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America have been really integral to that. So we wanted to write a book that would, like I said, take stock of that and then also uh, talk about where it's going. And then, you know, the book came out in March 2020, which I'm not sure, you know, I know you're, Ben, you're a little old, your memory <laughs> failing you sometimes, you can forget that maybe things have, things have changed a little bit. You probably don't even remember the before times at this point, before March 2020. But there were some... <laughs> Some things that changed drastically in American politics after March 2020. Yeah. And so the updated version of the book has a 40 page preface that uh, talks about uh, all of the all of the things that, that have happened since then, starting, of course, with the end of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Yeah. And sort of like fizzling out of the campaign in a way that nobody was really expecting, of course. Um, but then, you know, everything that's happened since then, the George Floyd uprising and uh, the, the decimation that COVID has wreaked on our society and in our world. Uh, so we try to take stock of all of it and talk about uh, what it means uh, as people who are partisans for uh, this movement, who really believe in this movement uh, uh, that, that has new, been newly reborn over the last half decade and really want to see it succeed and really think that it can transform uh, our society and our planet. Uh, you've said two things in particular uh, that I'd like for you to go back and elaborate on. One is the maturation of democratic socialism, and the other is the detoxification of uh, socialism. Um, let's start with, I guess they're kind of interconnected. Start with detoxification of socialism and then move on to the maturation of socialism. So we've been told for decades and decades in this country that 
Americans will never go for this socialism stuff or this like class struggle. You know, we're all a nation of temporarily embarrassed millionaires, right? As Steinbeck once said, uh, you know, we, we don't like this, this, these fighting between uh, workers and bosses. And we certainly don't like the, the scary S word socialism. And even though I've been a socialist for my adult entire adult life. And, you know, even I, I declared myself a socialist first when I was a teenager. I mean, half my life at this point. Um, and I, even though I work for a socialist magazine, Jacobin, I kind of believed that about Americans never going for this stuff. Um, I was like, well, I'm a socialist, but just, um, I'll, I'll keep, I'll hide my socialism under a bushel, <laughs> right? I'll, I'll keep that to myself. I'll do things like be involved in the labor movement, write about what's going on in the labor movement, et cetera. Um, but I'm not going to make socialism. Like I'm not going to be fr- out front and center about it because I believe that it turned people off, but we've learned through the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, that that is not true when socialism is pitched in terms that make sense to people. When, when socialism uh, when, when, when people associate socialism with policies like Medicare for all, with free public college tuition, uh, wiping out of student debt, getting rid of medical debt, stopping uh, the insane imperialist wars abroad, all this stuff, when that is what socialism means to people. There's actually a huge hunger for it in this country right now because people recognize that something's very wrong in this country and in, in this planet. We're, we're being driven to the brink of climate collapse. Uh, we seemingly can't do anything about it. We've got people you know, still just drowning in medical debt and student debt getting worse every single year. Uh, something is very wrong. And what is on offer from the Democratic Party has not been enough to push back on it. So... That combined with, you know, other things we talk in the book, like, you know, it's been over, uh, it's been three decades now since the end of the of the, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Soviet Union. So th- th- it's been enough time where we can sort of like put some of this Cold War baggage behind us and uh, talk about uh, how socialism, the idea of socialism, policies associated with socialism, socialists are central to, uh, to building that better world. And then for the question of maturation, um, I mean... It's it, I, it's strange to me that, that there's not been more writing about just like how crazy it is that this movement has essentially just materialized almost out of thin air, not entirely, but it feels like out of thin air over the last five years. Uh, we did not have a uh, there was there's nobody running for office on a national level who called themselves socialists besides Bernie Sanders. Uh, who was in, involved in American politics in really any way. There was not a national organization of almost 100,000 people who called themselves democratic socialists uh, who were playing a key role in local and state and national politics around the country even five years ago. All of that has just sprung up uh, from the Bernie Sanders campaign. I mean, of course, there was much else going on. Of course, there were people who had been socialists for longer than five years who were ready to you know, seize the moment when it presented itself. Of course, there were things like the 2008 financial collapse that helped make people open to these new ideas. Of course, there's a bunch of reasons behind what's going on. Uh, but in the space of five years, you know, we started from no socialist movement in the United States and no socialism to speak of in the United States to huge movement that is achieving real victories. Um, so that, that's just sort of an incredible thing in itself. 
And then in the book, we have some case study chapters where we talk about, for example, what's going on in Chicago with the, as I mentioned, the six DSA members who were elected to the city council uh, just in the last couple of years. And uh, to me, there's the, the story that's just like, oh, wow, isn't it cool that socialism is on the map now, which is still an important story to tell. But there's also a story about what kind of how that movement has matured in extremely rapid fashion has gone from having no organization and structure to speak of to doing things in Chicago. Like for example, uh, the formation of the socialist caucus recently was done with five members of the the city council, despite the fact that there were six members of it who were uh, originally uh, elected two years ago. And that is the result of uh, the what's going on with uh, Andre Vasquez, a uh, social uh, city council member and a uh, self-proclaimed socialist uh, who uh, decided to vote with Mayor Lightfoot uh, on a recent city budget and did so despite the protestations of the Democratic Socialists of America and other groups like United Working Families, uh, despite what the what the working class organized working class movement and what the socialist movement uh, was demanding of him. And so Rather than just saying, well, we're, we're just glad that we got anybody who wants to, you know, don the label of socialist on city council. Uh, the Democratic Socialist of America chapter in Chicago said, no, it's not OK that uh, somebody would uh, break with what with, with our agenda here. We're trying to really like plant a flag for a, a politics that refuses to endorse an austerity budget and then and, and go along with what the, the mayor was trying to do in her budget. Uh, and if you are not down with that, well, then we don't really want to hang out with you. And to me, that represents a kind of uh, maturity uh, in, that we're witnessing, a maturation that's happening in real time in Chicago. And, and that kind of thing is happening all across the country as these newly relevant and uh, newly powerful uh, socialists have to re- reckon with what it actually means to hold power and, and, and to uh, be you know in, in the rooms where you've got to make those kind of tough back and forth uh, uh, wranglings with people around, around politics. That's the stuff of politics and socialists mm-hmm. seem to be learning it in real time, which is kind of an incredible thing to see. All right, let me uh, play devil's advocate with you. Just since you mentioned Andre Vasquez, alderman of the 40th Ward on the north side of Chicago, uh, who, yes, uh, ran as an avowed democratic socialist. And yes, Michael, you're absolutely correct, was supported in his first run for office by democratic socialists who very diligently went door to door on his behalf and uh, did the hard grunt work that is necessary for a rookie to defeat an incumbent, as he did when he defeated Patrick O'Connor. Uh, Andre Vasquez's response to you would be, if I could paraphrase it is i'm the mature one micah not those radicals uh that you hang out with i'm the one who took a look at the decisions we were facing uh and that i'm the one who pushed a lori lightfoot uh a little bit to the left as opposed uh, to going to the right. If it wasn't for me, uh, Micah, I'm doing my best to um, paraphrase, uh, Lori Lightfoot would have had no alternative but move further to the right and there would have been more funding for police and less for social programs. So you're welcome, Micah. That would be Andre Vasquez's response. What's your response to my paraphrase response of Andre Vasquez? That kind of mindset is how the Democratic Party as a whole in the United States has drifted further and further to the right over the last several decades. That's always the justification for any kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know. Well, we're, we don't want to touch 
we, we, we don't want to touch the, the hot button issues uh, and the other side is going to get mad and the other side is going to do way worse. So, you know, let's just, let's just figure out some kind of compromise here. And w- the way that the right gained so much power over the last several decades in, in this country, you know, culminating in the election of Ronald Reagan in the eighties uh, was by refusing to do that kind of uh, hair splitting and deal making and, and compromising on their vision. Their vision was an insane reactionary one that has produced a lot of misery in this country and the world. But like as a movement that started on the fringes and then moved into the mainstream, the right said, no, we're not going to we're not going to bargain with you over this. This is our line in the sand. We're drawing it and you come to us. We're not going to come to you. And maybe that means that they you know had to lose some elections for a while. But but eventually that that produced really a, a bountiful harvest for the right wing in this country uh, that we're still living with today. And I think that the left. Uh, this new left in this country, this new socialist movement, understands that and, and says that it is, it is critical that people take principled stances against things like an austerity budget from Mayor Lori Lightfoot and not try to wheel and deal and not try to come up with a, a sort of compromise solution and meet her halfway. Say, no, this budget is morally unacceptable and we are not going to vote for it. And uh, so there's that there's that moral clarity that is there. Um, and then there is also just the idea that like, well, this, you're not just in office for yourself as a as a democratic socialist. You are there as part of a movement. You are a movement representative. Uh, the movement, you know, puts you there. You owe your position to the movement. You think that, that, that this working class and leftist movement uh, is is critical and important to changing the world. So you have some level of accountability to that movement. It's not just whatever you decide to do that day uh, is what you're going to how you're going to legislate. You need to uh, be be accountable and listening uh, to that broader movement. And so that was what. The argument, you know, a key part of the argument against uh, that that vote of Vasquez's was is that the the movement, and not just some weirdo Democratic socialists, also you know United Working Families and the Chicago Teachers Union and and, and the best of the uh, labor movement of the city, um, they also said don't you know we don't want people voting for this budget; it's a bad budget. So if, if you feel accountable to them, if you feel like you're in office legislating on on the behalf of that working class and leftist movement, uh, then you should be taking what they have to say into serious consideration when you, uh, when you do your votes. And so uh, that was the argument from, from the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America, that, uh, that you can't just you get, you don't just get to claim the label and then go off and make whatever decisions that you want to make. Uh, you have a level of accountability to us. And when you fail to do that, we're going to censure you. All right. Uh, that was uh, a very good response. And one day, if I could pull it off, I'll have you and Andre. I'd love to have a debate between you and Andre Vasquez on the show. I've and can I just po- say real quick before we move on? I mean, I, I'm, it's not like I want to declare war on Andre Vasquez or anything. I think that uh, that, I, that there's a role for people. You know, I, I, I don't think that the socialist movement can succeed in anything if it's just doing things with socialists only. It has to be as part of a broader coalition, you know, uh, uh, operating in an opened up space for a broader left that includes people who don't call themselves socialists of any kind and so of course that means that someone like uh, andre you know despite that vote is still someone who is more progressive than most members of the chicago city council and so uh there, there still needs to be a, a willingness to work with him on all, all kinds of stuff on city council but f- for the socialist movement in particular i think it's important to make that distinction about being accountable to a movement and there being consequences if you uh, betray that movement yeah by the way he's andre still calls himself a socialist i don't know if he's caught this last week there was a moment at the city council momentary levity uh, at the Chicago City Council where uh, Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Lori Lightfoot mistakenly identified Andre Vasquez as Carlos Ramirez Rosa. It was a mistake on her part. And Andre, I didn't know he was a 
comedian. He got, he's like, he's found all of Andre like found his inner Jerry Seinfeld. He gets up and he said something along the lines of, um, uh, you know, I, uh, I know we're, uh, both uh, Latinx and we're both socialists, but, uh, we're not the same person. Boy, life was not laughing. Okay? Well, listen, Andre used to be a, a freestyle battle rapper, right? Yes. So, you know, he can toss those, those lines off the dome. I, uh, yeah. Andre's going to be doing stand up at Zanies. Uh, he's got a whole routine. Uh, a priest, a minister, a rabbi walked. All right. Um, let's talk about the backlash. Now, you talk about the maturation process. Uh, socialists gained some political power in the city of Chicago. As you said, six were elected to the city council. And I just, you know, mainstream media, mainstream media. I dutifully read the mainstream media every day. I want to know what they're up, up to. And um, they bash the hell out of socialism. I love cranes. Cranes have this one. The Democratic Socialists in Chicago, let's examine them. They're human beings like you are, but they're socialists. <laughs> anyway, they eat. turns out they sleep. Turns they out they're sleep. Not, yeah, vampires or something. And they eat. They use forks. Um, so piece, anyway, by the way, I have to say I was quoted in that piece, and I thought it was a fantastic piece. Yes, no, I just tease. Ah, come on, mainstream media. If you cannot have a little humor, uh, it goes both ways, you know. All right. Anyway, so um, going back to the backlash, I've seen them maligned uh, frequently. And uh, I, I remember when Michelle Harris was named floor leader, older woman, Michelle Harris was named Lori Lightfoot's floor leader. <laughs> it was like the socialists, they were like talking about, I think they were pond scum or something. The socialists have to learn that they can't get what you want. And I always laugh, Mike, this is me, not Mike. I always laugh. I'm like, anything these lefties want, are advocating for what most people want in the city of Chicago. I'm just saying, most people want more money for the public schools. Oh, can't have that. We have to subsidize Lincoln, <laughs> Lincoln Yards. So, but you got what I'm saying? There's the backlash. I saw it today in the paper, the backlash to the elected school board. Uh, some writer in a Tribune said, just put the Chicago Teachers Union now runs CPM. I'm laughing. Chicago Teachers Union could not elect how many aldermen does it have? They automatically act like it's just going to be robots. And Stacey Davis Gates is going to say, oh, I want you to do this. <laughs> As opposed to the other way around with a real puppet master. Anyway, so talk about the backlash and how socialists deal with that. Well, anytime that there is progressive social change that happens in any society at any point in history, there is a backlash to it, right? A backlash that is uh, led by the people who want to defend the ancien regime. They want to uh, keep the society structured the way that it used to be so that the people on top continue getting all the good stuff and the people on the bottom get screwed. So, I mean, that is that is to be expected, I think, uh, and, and certainly to be expected for socialists who have been so demon you know, go back to whatever you want, McCarthyism or even the first Red Scare in the 1910s. I mean, this is the, this is our fate as socialists to be red baited, to be constantly attacked, to be accused of you know eating people's babies or whatever. Uh, but uh, it doesn't seem to be having much effect at this point. I mean, as you said, the socialist agenda, the American socialist agenda for the 21st century is one that is deeply popular across the board. I mean, what, what, what do we want? We want Medicare for all that, you know, constantly polls uh, extremely high, including in some polls, the Republicans, the majority of Republicans say that they want Medicare for all. Uh, you know, we want to tax the rich 
across the board, constantly we see that uh, Americans agree with this this desire to tax the rich. Uh, the, the socialist agenda in 2021 is a very popular uh, agenda. And there are always going to be forces that, that mobilize uh, against that agenda because it is an agenda that goes against the interests of the 1% that goes against the interests of the tiny sliver of extremely wealthy people who are getting more and more extremely wealthy or hoarding more and more of the resources every day. They're not going to just let us dispossess them of the stuff that they've hoarded from us. They're going to fight back, of course. And you see that in all kinds of ways. I mean, you know, you see that, for example, in the state of Illinois, now that we're talking about lifting the ban on rent control, well, now you see the machinery of the uh, landlord lobby starting to, you you know, lumber into motion and, and getting ready to fight back against any kind of serious campaign to lift the statewide ban on rent control. I mean, this is what happens. This is the stuff of politics. This is this is how it works. But I feel very uh, comfortable and confident right now, knowing that uh, that this is a moment in which the socialist agenda, the idea of socialism in general, is back on the map and, and is actually compelling to people. And uh, it's going to be, you know, it's a tough road to hoe to fight back against this, you know, a, a movement from landlords and the wealthy and whoever else who are, of course, far better funded uh, than the, the socialist movement, have infinite resources, basically, to fight back against any kind of working class agenda. But, you know, as the old saying goes, they've got the money and we've got the people. So I gotta <laughs> put my, I'm going to put my money on the people. Yeah, uh, that way we're coming full circle. The discussion began with how dead broke we all are. And now uh, we're right back uh, at it. Uh, well, let's talk about uh, the power of socialists and uh, let's broaden it from Chicago a bit, move out uh, from Chicago uh, as much as I would love to talk to you about the elected school board thing, which is a, a matter of my mind. Joe Biden, President Joe Biden. Uh, I did not vote for him, as you know, Micah, in the primary. I voted for Bernie. Uh, I have I've now come to the conclusion that any time Bernie has approached Harold Washington's status in my mind, every time, anytime I see his name on a ballot, I will instinctively punch. <laughs> can't help myself. There's no like, better. Was, there's no better Ben Jarowski seal of approval than that. <laughs> ben, the Bernie Sanders has reached the Harold Washington level. Wow. Well, I got to I have to uh, tell you this, that uh, as much as I disagree with this, the the name I'm about to uh, identify, it was the same thing. Barack Obama. I see that name on a ballot. Can't help myself. I don't want to. Every time I've had the opportunity to vote for Barack Obama, Mike, I'm just telling you. And And in 2008, I said, I am voting for Dennis Kucinich in the Democratic primary. Anyway, I voted for. So how'd that work out for you, Ben? Nah, I didn't vote for Bern, uh, Dennis. Uh, I f- followed the dictates of my oldest daughter and dutifully voted for Barack Obama. All right. Um, so let's talk about Joe Biden. I didn't vote for him, but I so far have uh, been uh, prove I approve of him in a way that I can't say I've approved of any Democratic president. Uh, that I uh, have lived under. You know, there was things about Barack Obama I liked. I just, he was such a class act in so many ways. And I, I just, you know, I liked the fact that he was in the White House. And I loved how Bill Clinton annoyed the hell out of Republicans. You know, there's nothing Bill Clinton did as a president that I like, but I love, he just annoyed the hell. I love, but Biden, I actually like, I like his first proposals that he's been putting out there. Now I see he's already talking about 
cutting a deal on the corporate tax to bring Republicans in on his infrastructure bill. So already, uh, but so far so good in my humble opinion. And he sounds a lot like Bernie and Bernie's been singing his praise as well. Your thoughts on Joe Biden. Well, first of all, I think it's important to distinguish between the different kinds of things that Biden's doing. I think on a domestic agenda, there's been a lot of good stuff. Uh, some things that didn't go nearly far enough, uh, many things in that front, but but decent, better than I think people like me expected from Joe Biden. But on the foreign policy front, I can't say that I think that he's, he, I mean, he's just, it's just sort of standard fare. I mean, whether it's sort of uh, raising tensions with, uh, with China or uh, with Russia or with Iran. I mean, I, I, I'm not, it's largely business as usual on the foreign policy front, which uh, is sadly seems to just be our, I mean, that, that it's a much, it's a much more difficult thing to dislodge the foreign policy consensus uh, in which America is, you know, the imperial hegemon that rules the world uh, than it is to, give people some, uh, you know, better unemployment benefits or something like that here in the U.S. So I think it's important to distinguish those two things. But, yeah, certainly Biden's tenure has been uh, better than I expected it to be. I think the extent to which it has been good has to be credited with the movement that has sprung up around Bernie Sanders, though, because there's literally nothing in Joe Biden's long career in elected office that would indicate to us that he believes any of the kind of good stuff that he's doing right now. I mean, he spent his whole career arguing against those things. You know, he's, he's the guy from the, the Senator from Delaware who's carried out the, uh, you know, the, the uh, dictates of the uh, like insurance and, and credit card companies. Right. I mean, like this is who he's been for decades. And then he's had this sort of like late life come to Jesus moment, which I'll take it. But like, I, I also don't I only trust it as far as I can, I can throw it. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, we it, it just sort of speaks to the moment that we're in, both in that there, there is real energy behind these left wing ideas uh, for more robust social welfare, uh, you know, a, a, a net to catch people in. Um, and also that under coronavirus, especially, we have no other choice than than to engage in this kind of social spending. I mean, literally, the society could be crumbling around us if if we didn't engage in some basic kind of uh, social spending in response to this. So, you know, it's 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 response to the dictates of the moment. It's in response to the dictates of this newly re-energized left that we have. I do not think that it is a result of anything that uh, Uncle Joe himself uh, believes about how the society should be structured, what it should be look like, what it should look like. But, you know, if, if good comes down the pike, I'll take it. Yeah, I I have absolutely no idea what uh, Joe Biden actually believes about anything. Who knows what any politician believes about anything? Just no, who cares, about, really? Yeah. yeah, who cares? <laughs> Ultimately, what you care about is what they do. Uh, you made a comment that I just have to come back to. No other choice uh, about to um, have social socialist type responses uh, to the um, the pandemic. And I would argue that there is another choice. It's not one I would make. It's not one you would make. Uh, I don't think it's one that Joe Biden would make, but it's one being advocated by the Republican Party, which is roughly 50 percent of the, the government right now. And that is uh, cut off uh, aid to people who lost their jobs because of COVID. Uh, and uh, cut back on infrastructure uh, expenditures and cut back on raising taxes on the well-to-do and uh, wait for trickle-down to miraculously, and that's in quotes, uh, revive the economy. So 
it's my my point to uh, my dear friends on the left has always been that it's not just like a laboratory where we can just make it a pure existence but we're actually i always say this uh with miles because miles comes on the show he's a basketball fan it's like we're playing a, a game and the other guy is guarding you you know what i'm saying and so it's just not in the abstract so there is another choice it's being articulated and advocated uh by the republican party which represents 50 percent as i said of the government right now it's almost an even split uh so your thoughts on this yeah i mean of course it's true uh and that is what republicans always do um you know it's funny that it is kind of i always think of the that a republican right-wing argument for trickle-down economics is kind of like the fundamentalist christians who say that like the world is coming to an end soon it's like well the world's coming to an end well it, it hasn't come yet but you just have to wait longer it's gonna happen like you know it's just like well it's gonna trickle down eventually the problem is you haven't waited long enough and the, it's a very convenient philosophy because you just tell people to keep waiting and it'll deliver the goods eventually you just gotta let it you know let it get, get a little more time to uh, to to work its way through the, the bloodstream to uh, it'll, it'll it'll show up eventually i promise <laughs> um but yeah i mean uh, right now in particular is a moment in which the kind of callousness, the, the, the complete disregard for basic human life uh, that is at the heart of the GOP agenda uh, is on uh, display right now because we're at a time, we're still in the midst of a, of a crushing economic uh, depression. Uh, people are still suffering immensely around the country. It's, of course, uh, recovering a little bit, but it's, it's still really brutal out there. And what does it say about a, a party that they're just so eager that at the slightest uh, hint of a turnaround there where they want to uh, cut off these uh, desperately needed measures uh, to keep people uh, afloat during a, during an inc- incredibly unprecedented uh, depression at a time when we're, you know, there are studies repeatedly coming out showing that the kind of emergency measures that were taken during the coronavirus pandemic actually uh, got rid of uh, enormous amounts of pro- poverty in this country. It's like it worked. The, the policies worked. They made life for people in the wealthiest country in the history of all human existence actually did not live in grinding misery for a couple of months. Maybe we should do some more of that. Maybe we could actually get rid of the grinding misery that, that is so suffused in our society uh, with, with some more of these kind of policies. Um, but, of course, you're never going to hear that from the, the right. It's their job to create more misery. So they're going to do their best to make more of it. Uh, it's their job to create more misery. Uh, uh, that's a great quote. I, I have to say that the right has completely dropped out of even in, in the most basic of engagement with all these problems uh, that you enunciated. They, in the old days of the Bush right uh, and the, the uh, Paul Ryan right, uh, they would concoct market-based solutions to these problems. You know, and so I would read about their market-based solutions, and there would be an engagement over the ideology. You know how how effective they would be, et cetera, and so forth. And I would usually be critical because I thought it was rather nonsense. But at least it was an attempt to come up with uh, a a solution. I'm looking at Marjorie Taylor Greene, and this ties it all together, and her obsession with AOC. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of uh, Georgia. You all know who she is, ladies and gentlemen. We talk about her a lot in this show. Uh, and she has a very strange, bizarre obsession with AOC. Uh, she taunts her. 
she trails her. She's always wants to get taunt her, get her like a fight. Like she, she almost like this weird thing. Like she wants to take it out into the hallway type attitude that I hadn't seen since high school, man. Uh, and uh, very strange. And so, how do you think? It's sort of the general public's mind. Do people view like an AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene? Like there's a group of people who would want you to say, well, AOC is just the left's version of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, which I think is absurd. Uh, and and then you have like that, those are the centrists who would tell you that. That's always a funny argument because it's like. One side thinks that like Democrats are literally like eating children and raping children and engaging in massive human trafficking. And the other side says, I want health care for everybody. And it's like, yes, these two, these two are the yes. same thing. <laughs> yes. Welcome to my life in Chicago. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> that's uh, and so that's, so that's the centrists. Uh, and then you have the right who just try to vilify uh, AOC at every turn. So what's your sense of how this is playing out? You know, the symbolic fight between the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the AOCs of the world. I think that in the past, I mean, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a particularly unhinged person on the right. I mean, the right is just sort of drifting further and further into just absolutely bizarre world. So she's just the, one of the best manifestations of that drift that we've seen. But in the past, there would be so much cowering on the part of the Democratic Party in response to those kind of like frothing at the mouth, like right wing, rabid figures. You know, there's all kinds of reporting, for example, during the Obama administration or after the Obama administration about the Obama years that they talked about how terrified they were of Fox News and that at the drop of a hat, like anything that would happen to be to be pushed back on Fox News, like they would want to like recalibrate and and and, you know, not meet the challenge head on, but just sort of figure out a way to defuse the situation because Fox News was pushing back on whatever it is they were doing. Um, I, someone like AOC does not shrink back from that challenge. Quite literally, if you saw the footage of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and AOC on the floor of the House uh, a few weeks ago, I don't know if you saw that clip where Marjorie Taylor Greene is saying something to AOC as she passed, and AOC, like, leans in and is doing the, like, Bronx, like, finger <laughs> jabbing at her. Like, she is not afraid to take on uh, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. She's, she's not going to allow herself to be cowed by uh, such a person because she knows that the right relies on that ability to sort of whip up anger about people like AOC and, and then, and that, that the whole point is to get them to back off of their agenda of their transformative uh, agenda. So I think AOC understands that and is, and is really meeting it head on. And that is what we need. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a Midwestern guy. I've, I've grown up in this region. I don't like conflict. I don't like fighting, whether it's in my personal life or in the political life. It makes me uncomfortable. I start to sweat. It's not something <laughs> I enjoy. But that's what we got to do if we're yeah. gonna if we're gonna not see the planet be burned to a crisp. But we're not gonna have a president, Marjorie Taylor Greene. We got to meet these people head on. And I think that uh, people like. AOC are showing us, or Jeanette Taylor in Chicago, for example, they're showing us exactly how it is that, that we can uh, confront those uh, those forces that oppose that better world that is possible. Oh, that was a great riff, and that's as good as uh, a riff to close the show with as ever. That was a great riff, Mike. I'm with you, too. I always like, I'm the peacemaker in my life. Like, Come on, can we all get along? But then, I, you know, in the reality, uh, it's, it's a struggle. There's no doubt about it. By the way, I have to ask you, 
Uh, we're doing this uh, on the internet, obviously. You can't, uh, listeners, obviously, you cannot see Micah, uh, but I get to see him. One day we'll figure out how to uh, get the, the video on. Our, our crack crew of technicians is working around the clock on that. Um, but in the background, there's a photograph on the wall of Dolly Parton. I swear that's Dolly Parton. And I would never thought, Micah, that you were a Dolly Parton fan. I yeah, love Dolly Parton. Uh, Who doesn't so- love Dolly Parton? I love Dolly. I grew I, well, I grew up listening to country music in general. That was all we listened to in my household. So, you know, I'm a huge country fan. But wow. Dolly especially. I mean, Dolly's the goat. Dolly's the goat. Yeah. What's your favorite Dolly Parton song of all time? Uh, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not a true head. I don't know a lot of the deep cuts, but, uh, you know, I mean, you can't go wrong with, uh, Jolene, but, uh, I mean, the fact that she wrote and I will always love you is people, it just, it blows my mind every time I remember, I believe if, if I remember the story correctly, I think that I read somewhere that she wrote both of those songs in the same day. I, I, it's, wow. it's, she wrote two of her all-time classics in the same day, and it's just uh, it's just astonishing. And, and you gotta you gotta you gotta give it to her. Also, I'm just as I'm looking at the background that you're referring to now, I noticed that I've got a dolly right below a, a, a Picasso painting. So you know it's kind of fitting. We got oh, okay. dolly and Picasso here. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's um, I couldn't tell that was Picasso. Yeah, but it is. Uh, yeah, Dolly Parton, Jolene. Great Dolly Parton. Uh, yeah, and I, uh, I'm so, it's amazing like, where she came from, yeah. uh, how much she accomplished, uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that she just resisted the overtures of Trump to join MAGA. Uh, it's not like she was embracing Bernie or anything. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying she goes, she saw the divisions that existed in our country. And she goes, you know, I don't need to go with MAGA. So I'm just going to be Dolly. So uh, just really happy to see that Dolly has made her way to the wall of Micah. Micah, before you go, uh, tell everybody where they can get your book, the name of your book. Go ahead. Well, uh, the best place to get the book is on the publisher's website, which is Verso, V-E-R-S-O, books.com. And if you uh, search for, you know, Verso Bigger Than Bernie on Google, you should be able to find it. I believe it might be on sale right now. Uh, And you make sure you get the paperback version because that's the one with the expanded edition. And then I would just also encourage people, you know, I I, I co-wrote this book, but uh, really I'm much more comfortable uh, editing behind the scenes. And uh, that's what I do every day for uh, our website, which is jacobinmag.com, J-A-C-O-B-I-N, mag.com. We publish about 45 new articles every week uh, on a wide, range of topics. We just published an article yesterday by our contributor Mariana Daprile uh, about the Thompson Center. Uh, so, you know, there's, we got some got some good Chicago content in there uh, wow. about uh, an appreciation. She she finds the Thompson Center to be an incredibly ugly building, yet believes that we should save it. So she, our Chicago listeners uh, should should check out her article on the Thompson Center. Oh, yeah, definitely. Maybe bring her on. That's a, one of my... Uh... We, I don't think we ever had a conversation about the Thompson Center in the show, but uh, just that's just a classic Chicago land deal. That, don't get me started. And that's just about and cutting a deal to enrich somebody. I don't know who. But <laughs> well, that's uh, just what you assume that whenever anything happens in Chicago, you assume uh, that's what's going on. And you would be proven correct most yeah. of the time. But you know what? I'm going to resist the temptation to denigrate Chicagoans because Micah gets mad at me whenever I make fun of voters. Okay. He's, he's like, don't go there, Ben. Don't go there. 
Well, because what are we, you know, who, who you can get mad at voters, of course, but like they're also the ones who, who else can save us? There's nobody else who's going to swoop in and save us unless we, you know, uh, we elect Emperor Ben Jarofsky anytime soon Ooh. to, uh, you know, think about that. Yeah, I think, uh, you, I think you would probably be do a good job. As far as emperors go, you'd be a good emperor of Chicago. Would that require me to get up earlier than 9 a.m.? I need to know that. OK, get back to me on that one, Mike. <laughs> Uh, all right. Very good. Micah, thank you so much for coming on the show and all the good work that you do and uh, really appreciate it. All right. Always a pleasure, Ben. Thanks. All right. That's great. Micah trick. And yes, bigger than Bernie is the name of his book. It's out in paperback uh, with an, a, a new forward uh, 40 pages or so talking about maturation of the democratic socialists. So all good stuff. You should go out and buy it or check it out in the library. Check, go to the public library and Socialists check like it out. libraries. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Check out the I library. <laughs> Socialists. Socialists love libraries. Uh, and I also want to thank Grace Pye, uh, my guest earlier. Fascinating conversation about uh, Asian American history. And of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. Uh, the man that Grace and Micah and Dolly Parton will tell you. They're back home in Alton. Dolly, <laughs> Grace, Dolly, and Mike have all agreed. In fact, they had lunch yesterday. And they get at lunch. While they're sitting around at lunch, they go, you know what we agree on? They're back home in Alton. They call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. We'll see you tomorrow. Oh, what a week it was. I cannot wait. See you tomorrow, everybody. sharing stories over the years to deciding to write a book. Good question, Mayor. Good question. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.